0: Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello everyone! We are so excited to be back after our summer break and I'm thrilled to be kicking off this new academic year with one of our brand new hospitalists at the Durham VA, Dr. Alex Horn. For those of you that have not met Dr. Horn yet, she did her medical school at Duke and then went to Baltimore for her training in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins University, where she also did a year as a Palm Critical Care Fellow and also a chief year where she was both a chief resident and had tremendous clinical duties in the actual hospital at Hopkins. During that year, she realized that hospital medicine is just better and it's, it's an amazing career. And so she decided to come back to do hospital medicine full-time, and she joined us down in Durham just a few months ago, actually. So we're super excited to have her, and you know, when she's not in the hospital taking amazing care of veterans, she hangs out with her husband and their adorable puppy, Winston. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Horton.
1: Thank you so much for that generous introduction.
0: And so because of her interest in pulmonary critical care medicine specifically, we're going to be talking about a clinical subject today, specifically idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. Dr. Horn, if it's okay, can I ask you, where did your interest in this specific diagnosis come from?
1: Oh, absolutely! I um, so as you said, I did my main year of pulmonary critical care fellowship. I subsequently realized, like you said, that hospital medicine, just with medical education opportunities and clinical reasoning, was better suited for me over my long-term career. I still do love the lungs, and I think ILD for an internist is actually really fascinating because there are so many different diseases that ILD encompasses, and and many of them actually require um, really good skills at physical exam interpretation of studies, a robust differential diagnosis that includes anything from rheumatologic diseases to exposure-related diseases. So I think it's very fun, not just for the pulmonologist, but also for the internist.
0: Oh yeah, I love that. I mean, the reason we love hospital medicine is because it forces us to think about the entire body. So as usual, we're going to start out with a case. Imagine that we have a 65-year-old veteran with a history of prior tobacco use, 30-pack years, but in remission now hypertension, and non-insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes who came to the ED at the request of their primary care provider because they had hypoxia in clinic. So the patient went to clinic earlier today for six months of progressive exertional dyspnea and dry cough. On interview, he reports he's had shortness of breath that gets worse with activity um, that previously didn't give him symptoms, and now he can do very little, even going up a flight of stairs or walking his dog makes him short-winded. He denies fevers, chills, or sputum production. He has not noticed any lower extremity edema, weight gain, PND, or orthopnea. And on our exam in the emergency room, he's got a resting O2 sat of 87%, bibasilar, inspiratory, velcro-like RALs, and a flat JVP without any edema. You also do notice clubbing on his extremities. So Dr. Horn, we've got a lot of interesting history and exam findings here. Where would you start for this patient?
1: So I think first Dr. Kudu, I'm very biased today and that I know that we're of course going to be talking about interstitial lung disease but I think before we jump into that it's important just to remember that when thinking about exertional dyspnea um, our differential of course is extremely broad with ILD being a relatively rare diagnosis and then IPF being a subset of ILD so even rarer it's really an important disease not to miss as an internist because it's progressive there's a high mortality rate and so it is something that should be on your differential diagnosis you know, I think importantly here, we're not seeing any signs of left-sided heart failure as the cause of this dyspnea on exertion. Um, it's been a gradual and, and progressive process, and certainly the presence here of these uh, bi Velcro crackles, while could represent anything from, you know, pulmonary edema to interstitial lung disease to many others, it is certainly raising my pretest probability here. The clubbing certainly makes me concerned for the presence of hypoxia at rest or with exertion, which we've of course seen on the vital signs in clinic.
0: And that that hypoxia has been chronic. Exactly. So we've been throwing out a couple of different terms. We have said ILD or interstitial lung disease, and we've said IPF or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between those two terms?
1: That's a great question. And I think one that I certainly did not know the answer to as a student or even an early trainee. Uh, But when we're referring to ILD, we're really referring to over a hundred parenchymal lung diseases. And then we group these diseases together based on some similarities in their pathology, their clinical findings or imaging findings. And some of those things include PFTs that are often show restriction with a low DLCO. You may see fibrotic findings on CT, characteristic exam findings like we see here, such as the inspiratory crackles and resting or exertional hypoxia. IPF though is a specific type of ILD. And even though ILD can be very intimidating at first, just due to the sheer number of diseases, I think the easiest way to really break it up is into big buckets. And so when we think about ILD and these hundreds of different diseases, you can really break it up into five key categories Each of these categories represents about 20% of cases. One of them is connective tissue diseases, another sarcoidosis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias. And this is where as a trainee, I think it's the most overwhelming because this is the alphabet soup, things like IPF or COP or NSIP. But the most important one here and the most common is idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis or IPF which we'll be talking about today. And then that fifth category is really um, uh, sort of a large bucket of exposure-related ILDs. So that might be drugs. Common things that internists use might be something like amiodarone or other occupational exposures like coal miner's lung or silicosis.
0: Wow. So with that broad of a differential, how can you tell them apart clinically? Like What pieces of this story might make you suspicious for IPF versus one of the other types of ILDs?
1: So at this point in the case, you know certainly many, 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 many different processes are still in our differential diagnosis. But when we specifically think about IPF, there's a few things here that at least pique my interest right off the top. So one is his age is over 60, as well as his male gender. These are more common in IPF. IPF almost exclusively impacts those over the age of 55, and there is a three-to-one male predominance. There's also a strong association with cigarette smoking and IPF, though smoking can also predispose you to some other ILDs.
0: Okay, so we've got some suspicion. Obviously, we're going to need to do some tests to confirm. So this patient is in the ED. It's our job to admit them. Where do we start with diagnostic tests?
1: Absolutely. So this is a patient that certainly deserves some more workup, but I would get resting and ambulatory oxygen saturations, and of course, treat any hypoxia with supplemental oxygen and a chest x-ray. My pretest probability at this point of ILD is relatively high based on the exam and the presentation, this sort of subacute to chronic progressive course, and a gentleman that has no findings of left-sided heart failure and your exam really shows those Velcro crackles. So I do think we're probably headed towards a CT of the chest as well as some PFTs, but I would start with some of those initial studies.
0: So what kind of things would you be looking for on the chest?
1: So, you know, the chest x-ray again, so ILD represents over 100 different diseases with many different patterns of imaging. But one of the commonalities is we often not always conceive fibrotic changes. So I would be looking for things on a chest x-ray, such as sort of reticular nodular opacities that could suggest fibrotic changes.
0: So if we saw something like effusions or vocal consolidation, that might point us in a different direction and potentially spare that person a CT. So that's why we would start with the chest X-ray. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Okay. But let's say we've done our imaging and we see some fibrotic changes. How do CTs change our management now?
1: And so the CT is going to be really key here because the pattern of what we see is going to help us narrow that huge group of you know 100 plus diseases down into some smaller buckets particularly you want to make sure you get a high resolution CT of the chest which allows us to get very thin slices that best characterizes the disease and in ILDs you'll see different patterns so you might see things like ground glass you may see reticular opacities honeycombing. You might see bilateral adenopathy or traction bronchiectasis. There's very specific imaging patterns for IPF. UIP is a, an imaging pattern that is seen in IPF, but UIP can be seen in other diseases as well. And that all is to say that all IPF is UIP, but not all UIP is IPF. So when we say UIP by a CT imaging pattern, what we're really saying is that the imaging pattern shows a bi predominant as well as peripheral predominant honeycombing traction bronchiectasis, and reticular opacities.
0: And so for the residents who are listening to this, I would encourage you to go look at your curriculum website for an awesome paper from radiologists about all the different CT findings for all the different ILD diagnoses. So go ahead and find that paper if you want to actually see pictures of honeycombing and traction bronchiectasis like Dr. Horn mentioned. Okay, so we have an idea about why we want a CT scan. What about PFTs, especially since those aren't always super easy to get in patients? So
1: PFTs here will certainly be helpful. And I think a good thing to remember for trainees when you're ordering PFTs is that we really want a complete set, so all three components. And that's to say that we want spirometry, we want lung volumes, and we want a diffusing capacity. In most cases of ILD, you're going to see a pattern of restriction, meaning that you're going to have a reduced F. BC, you're going to have low lung volumes, um, and you're going to have a reduced diffusing capacity. So you will have a low DLCO.
0: Got it. Do you think that's a test that needs to happen in the inpatient setting?
1: If you're working up a new interstitial lung disease, I would say that ideally you would try to get a set of PFTs. That, of course, is going to be dependent, though, on what's capable in your hospital. I think there's very few indications to get inpatient PFTs, but this is certainly one of them where I would strongly consider it.
0: So it would be at least worth trying anyway. Exactly. So while we're doing our workup, what other history should we try and obtain from our patient to raise or lower our suspicion for what kind of ILD we're dealing with? So
1: when I see new patients where I'm suspecting ILD, I really, again, like to keep it simple. Go back to those buckets. When you start thinking of hundreds of diseases, it becomes way too overwhelming. So I go back to those buckets that are, again, connective tissue disease, sarcoidosis, hypersensitivity pneumonitis, the alphabet soup of those idiopathic interstitial pneumonias and then exposures. So with connective tissue disease, I'm really doing a nice review of systems for rheumatologic disorders. I'm asking about things like arthralgias or dry eyes or dry mouth. I'm looking for ray nodes or skin tightening. I'm looking for rashes, muscle weakness. And really what I'm trying to distinguish is, does this patient have something like rheumatoid arthritis or myositis that might be associated with ILD? Family history, of course, is always important. So is there a family history of lung diseases, autoimmune disease, or sarcoid? And then a really, really good medication and exposure history. So I'm asking about any current or recent meds that are associated with ILD. Some of the big ones for internists to be aware of are amiodarone, methotrexate, and chemotherapy. And then any sort of other exposure. So in the household or workforce that may predispose to things like hypersensitivity, pneumonitis, or an occupational lung disease. Some common animals or birds, so pulmonologists always love to ask about bird exposures, asking about different occupations like quarries or mines. But really all of these, this can be a big list. And so the thing that I encourage everyone to do when you're doing a new workup like this is to actually go to the CHEST ILD patient questionnaire. You can access it online and it's going to be in our show notes, but it's a really comprehensive questionnaire that goes through all the things I just talked about with your patient that they can fill out.
0: Okay. So we definitely have a lot to do now. So let's go back to the case. Okay. So We start off from the beginning with vital signs being vital. And we recognize that at rest in the ED, our patient's SATs are 87% on room air. And when they get up to walk around, they dip all the way to 81%. All of the other vitals are normal and it requires three liters of oxygen by nasal cannula to get them to a safe oxygen range. So we get our chest X-ray. We see those bibasilar reticular opacities. So we're triggered to get a CT of the chest. We get it done. It shows lower lung and peripheral predominant reticular opacities, honeycombing, and traction bronchiectasis consistent with the UIP pattern that Dr. Horn was talking about. So we managed to get inpatient PFTs as well. We find an FEV1 to FEC ratio of 0.85, an FVC of 50, 52% predicted, TLC of 61% predicted, and a DLCO of 42% predicted, which is confirming a pattern of restriction and a reduced DLCO. So we do that review of systems, we use our chest ILD patient questionnaire. We don't find any family history of ILD or autoimmune disease and most of our questions about autoimmune disease or sarcoid features are negative. There's no occupational animal medication or other exposures. So we don't have any more hints from our ILD questionnaire. What is our leading differential diagnosis at this point and what other tests do we need to do to confirm it now?
1: So you now or whoever has been in the ED and gotten all this work up has done such an excellent job with their history and their imaging and PFTs that there is not all that much more testing we need to do when we go through the findings here. At this point, I really suspect that this could be IPF, and specifically that's because we see the UIP and by a very good history, we've started to make all of those other things like exposure-related UIP pattern, connective tissue much less likely. His age over sixty, his male status, his smoking history, all of those things start to prioritize IPF for me. In terms of testing, again, ruling out connective tissue ILD is always important. Some things here make this less likely. So one is you've done a beautiful exam and history that don't suggest connective tissue. Disease. In his case, um, myositis can happen in elderly patients, for example, as a perineoplastic phenomenon. And sometimes lung disease might actually be the first manifestation, even before the muscle findings. And so, getting a myositis panel here is something I would do. The ATS guidelines would say that for anyone you're sort of working up for ILD, at the very least, you should get inflammatory markers and ANA. Testing for rheumatoid with RF and CCP and a myositis panel, and then only based on your history, if there or exam, if there's suggestive findings of scleroderma or Sjogren's disease, et cetera, then you could get even more antibodies.
0: And I'll just mention also that these are all lab tests that several of them are send outs and will take a while for them to come back. So. We don't necessarily have to accomplish all of them in the inpatient setting. What do you think would be reasonable to at least order and get drawn before they leave the hospital, Dr. Horton?
1: This is a patient that I would absolutely have an inpatient pulmonary consultation on, uh, based on the fact that they've have a new ILD and they're quite hypoxic and they're gonna have to go home on home oxygen. And so this is someone that overall is is pretty sick. And so I do think is gonna warrant more of an inpatient evaluation than we might do with other diseases. And so I I would work with my pulmonary colleagues to see when you look at each hospital, which send outs to send, especially for things like myositis panel. But certainly, as a non send out, you could get an ANA as well as some of the testing for rheumatoid.
0: Okay, that's helpful. So, we do a bunch of lab tests. We send out our autoimmune panel as well as a myositis panel. The autoimmune panel comes back negative. The myositis panel is going to take a while. At this point, we feel pretty confident that we've diagnosed IPF. Do we need a biopsy or a BAL to confirm that?
1: Great question. And the presumptive diagnosis at this point would be IPF. When we talk diagnostically, the best thing for you to look at as an internist would be the ATS guidelines for so the American Thoracic Society. And we're going to include those in our show notes for those that just have more interest. But specifically in those that have definite UIP on imaging, and you've started to exclude all of those other causes based on history, et cetera, you do not need to get a BAL or a lung biopsy. And actually specifically the recommendations would say, do not get them. If it's less certain your imaging pattern, for example, if it's only probable UIP, then you would consider a surgical lung biopsy or BAL. But really as an internist, you should be doing all of this in conjunction with pulmonary because lung biopsies aren't without some risk, especially in patients that have more advanced lung disease. And so this really should be a multidisciplinary discussion with pulmonary with thoracic surgery.
0: So hopefully our pulm colleagues will agree that we can make a diagnosis of IPF without putting this patient through any procedures. What's the next step for this patient? What is his prognosis? What can we do for him?
1: So unfortunately, IPF is chronic and it's quite quickly progressive. The median survival is still just three to four years. I think importantly, there's not a cure. So historically, all the treatment has really been supportive. And so that includes things like vaccination. So flu, COVID, pneumococcal um, vaccination, oxygen, and then monitoring for things like development of pulmonary hypertension. Um, Just in the last several years, we now have new antifibrotic agents. They do appear to slow disease progression. Um, and In some meta-analysis data, there might be a mortality benefit, but these really can be limited by cost and side effects such as GI distress. You do not need a biopsy in order to be a candidate for antifibrotic therapy such as perfenadone. But I think one of the important things here, at least from the data that we have now, is that even though we do see slower rates of lung function decline, These medications aren't miracle workers. And so it's not that they've shown to have a huge mortality benefit or multiple extra years onto your life. And so even once you get your patient on these agents, it's still really important that you get them to a transplant center early. This is really relevant for patients that are younger, that have minimal comorbidities. Because we know this disease is so rapidly progressive, there is no cure and median survival is so low. If your patient is a candidate for lung transplant, you want to get them in and evaluated quite quickly.
0: So this patient's on a path now, or is there anything else we can do to support their quality of life?
1: Absolutely. So palliative care referral really should be sought early. And even, you know, at this point, if I were seeing this patient in the hospital, I'd be working with my pulmonary colleagues, would be coordinating outpatient follow-up, home oxygen, all those supportive things that we talked about. But along with that, palliative care referral now Um, And that's really, we want to do that early again because this disease is so rapidly progressive and we want to be able to explore goals of care, explore symptom control. Another thing that I would do at this point is a referral to pulmonary rehab, and that's been shown to reduce dyspnea and improve six minute walk times in those with ILD. Some other things that might be helpful as the patient develops worsening and worsening dyspnea would be thinking about opioids for air hunger. Facial fans have a little bit of data and providing some symptom relief, too, for shortness of breath.
0: So there's things that we can do for them in the hospital before they leave, even as simple as getting them a fan. And then we can get referrals to other places also. Dr. Horn, tell us how this patient ended up. So this patient was diagnosed with IPF. They
1: ended up being referred to pulmonary medicine at a transplant center and palliative care right off the bat. They were started on supplemental oxygen before discharge and they were referred to pulmonary rehab on discharge as well. They did get started on an antifibrotic agent. So the patient was started on profanadone And as we would expect, his lung function unfortunately continued to decline. He continued to require escalating amounts of oxygen up to five liters at rest. And eventually he underwent a lung transplant evaluation. Since he was relatively young, so he was under the age of 70, he lacked really any other significant comorbidities and he didn't have things such as any recent or active cancer. He was thankfully listed for transplant and he's currently awaiting his new lungs.
0: Thank you so much for closing that, Dr. Horn. I love this case in particular because it's such a great example of the variety of diagnoses that we can see how it's really up to us as the front line in the hospital to get the ball rolling and to get the patient moving in the right direction. So thank you so much for sharing this case with us today.
1: Of course, it's my pleasure. And and nothing gets me more excited than a broad differential diagnosis and using our bedside skills to really narrow that differential.
0: Well said, Dr. Horan. So thank you so much to Dr. Alex Horan for joining me today in our discussion about the diagnosis of IPF. Um, For those of you that want to see the references that we talked about today or just learn more about how to diagnose and treat IPF, look on your curriculum website for links and uh, documents to all the things that we talked about today. And as always, the views and opinions stated are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Bureau VA or the Veterans Health Administration.